Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Dr. Peter Robin Hisinger, a Berlin-based professor of neurobiology and the author of The Self-Assembling Brain, How Neural Networks Grow Smarter. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss fascinating research that he presents in this book. Uh, Robin, uh, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. It's a pleasure. I'm very happy to be here in Berlin with you in uh, Ireland. In the book, uh, first you uh, set the scene uh, and you discuss fascinating research that led to the development of neural theory, the theory that suggests that neurons are individual connected cells. Uh, talk us through the details of the neural theory and uh, what led to the development of uh, this theory? I'm a neurobiologist and uh, I'm uh, very interested in the, the history of our field, trying to understand how you could put an intelligent brain together. And this really goes back to what you call the neural theory. Uh, back in the early 20th century, heroes in our field like uh, Santiago Cajal and Camilo Golgi were actually debating whether it could be that you have individual neurons that all have our physiological units that have to find each other um, to make proper connectivity, or whether the, the neural network that kind of makes up our brain kind of comes prefabricated. And they could actually never agree, uh, even 100 years ago. And, and to my mind, this reflects the, the difficulty in, in even imagining that there could be something like a genetic program that contains enough information to let individual neurons decide whom to make contact with. And so when I say whom to make contact with, I of course mean other neurons. So, so this is where the idea of the, the neuron theory comes from. Um, it is a very old theory. And of course, already 100 years ago, basically the evidence was there. Definitely in the middle of the 20th century, the evidence was already there that this is the case. Now, how... The, in our brain, 86 billion neurons, that's the number of, of the latest estimate of the, for the human brain, how they actually do find each other to wire up a proper intelligent neural network is a, is a question that the field of developmental neurobiology is still grappling with. And this is a problem that we're trying to address in our lab by understanding how the genetic code encodes development of individual neurons, growing cables, growing what we call the axons and the dendrites that have to eventually wire up to make what we call synaptic connections. And what comes out of this, and this is something that, you know, maybe we will be discussing a little bit more later, is the idea that even before these brains are done, before they can start learning, they already are wired up to do amazing things. And here's, of course, also an interesting difference to current neural network approaches in artificial intelligence research. If the brain is uh, made up of individual connected cells, uh, it leads to the question that how do individual neurons uh, get together and produce intelligence? Uh, how do we get information in the brain that uh, makes it uh, intelligent? Uh, in the book, uh, you discuss this question as information problem. Uh, explain uh, the information problem uh, uh, that you discuss in this book. So the information problem in a nutshell is the, is the question of how much information could you get out of the genome to wire up a brain and to make something that has intelligent properties. That's something we may still have to define and talk about a bit. And alternatively, how much information can you get into a network once it's wired up through learning? And uh, the, the debate is often held like this. It says, you know, the genome is actually comparably small compared to trying to describe a neural network and all the information that's in there, definitely for, for uh, complicated, big, deep artificial neural networks, as well as, of course, uh, the human brain or other animals. So, so the discussion can go like this. It's say, you know, the genome contains, say, a gigabyte of information, but in order to describe 
a neural network or a brain, I need just, you know, unbelievably much more um, information. So where is that information coming from? And many approaches in current artificial intelligence research using artificial neural networks and what we now call deep learning are based on the idea that clearly the information is, no, whatever the genes do can't be that much. There's not that much in there anyway. Let's just start with a randomly connected network. All the information comes through learning. So that's very interesting to me because I'm a neurobiologist and we study neural networks that are already incredibly smart a long time before they get to learn anything. Beautiful examples in the animal kingdom um, that you know maybe we can talk about also a bit. Now, without going into one of these examples right away, just the notion that you can make a network that is 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 really amazing in its abilities, in its abilities to let an you know an insect fly, land at the ceiling, navigate in three D, find, navigate, mate, feed, all these things. Um, without having learned any of this. You know, and you look at the genome and the problem is right there. There really isn't that much information in the genome. So how does this work? And an important realization is, is the concept of, uh, of, you know, how do you define complexity and what kind of information are we comparing here? We're comparing the information content in the genome based on like bits in terms of, you know, the, the base pairs of the DNA with endpoint information of connectivity in the brain. But the genome does not contain the information about the endpoint. It doesn't contain the information about every single synaptic connection in the brain. It contains information how to grow a brain. And so this is what we study as developmental neurobiologists. We find that we cannot easily predict what an individual mutation in the genome would do, what an individual base pair change would do. We have to actually see how the growth process plays out. And what we find is that the more time and energy you put into a system based on a given, you know, underlying genetic information content, you can grow structures that are much more complicated and whose endpoint would describe much more information to describe than the original information that was sufficient to grow the structure. And there is a, there is a, a long-standing um, history of algorithmic information theory going back to Kolmogorov, Solomonov, um, Chaitin, and others, who already described this idea how you can uh, encode, basically, you know, think about uh, like compression of information, right? Like image compression. Um, you need time and energy to decompress that information and there is a type of information that is much less, yet if you put in the time and energy to decompress it, you can produce more information. So this is an interesting debate that uh, we are not actually having all that much in developmental biology if we just look at genes and molecules, but that is necessarily underlying the development of a brain. When it comes to this question that uh, what makes a neural network intelligent, you suggest we should ignore other points and we should focus on connectivity and learning. You suggest uh, that to understand what makes a neural network intelligent, we must find the answer to the question, is this connectivity or is this learning that makes a neural network intelligent? What I am keen to ask is, why in your view we should focus on these two points? This is a very historic um, reasoning uh, about where the information could possibly come from. And uh, I, as well as most colleagues I know, would simply not have any other idea where else the information would get into come from to get into the network. You either have the information based on the rules, the genes that make this thing, or you get the information once the initial network is wired through getting more information from the environment. And for most neural networks that we know, both play a role. This is a, a very important and very prominent debate about nature versus nurture, right? And so there's a lot of discussion, of course, also about our own um, character traits. How much of those is uh, nature? So the idea there would be it's in some way genetically encoded, although 
you know, as we just started to discuss, genetically encoded does not necessarily mean that you can read in the genome anything about the properties of the brain. But ultimately, this is where the information would, would uh, originate or um, through information from the environment. So we're basically relating back to this uh, ancient debate of uh, nature versus nurture, but I'm trying to look at it more from an information theoretical perspective. So we can say that in the book, uh, you reframe the nature versus nurture debate in a scientific manner by describing nature as connectivity that is built in the system and nurture as learning that comes uh, from the environment. Uh, is this a correct uh, description? The, it's, 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 I think by and large, yes, but there are, there's a very interesting gray zone. We do know, for example, that the genetic program that guides uh, in feedback of the genes with their own products um, so in a continuous feedback process, as long as the time and energy is there to keep a system alive, it will grow, cells will change their states, they gain new properties as time goes on. And as a brain develops, a very early brain develops, at some point the, the neurons have a new property um, and that's excitability. They put ion channels in their membrane, they're electrically excitable, they suddenly start communicating with themselves. They actually show spontaneous activity. And this spontaneous activity we know in neurobiology since several decades um, is an important part of the developmental process. You actually need those spontaneous activity waves um, that are very much akin to what happens later in the same electrically excitable way when the brain learns already during development. So in a way, the activity of the brain is already part of the genetic program even before you start learning new things from the environment. However, when you start learning new things from the environment, even that information um, uh, Processing in the neural network uses the same kind of changes of synaptic weights, the same kind of uh, learning processes that were already used during development before there was environmental input. This nicely leads us to my next question. In the book, you give very interesting examples of insects and animals to explain and further explore nature versus nurture debate uh, through the lens of connectivity versus uh, learning. In one example, you talk about butterflies taking a multi-generational trip. The trip is completed by many generations of butterflies and every next generation continues from where the previous uh, generation has finished. Talk us uh, through this fascinating example and uh, what we can learn from this. It is so fascinating. It really is. And it's uh, when I learned about this first, I just really felt you know, an, an urge to try to understand uh, what we even mean by genetically encoded. So let me tell you the story that you just beautifully already described. And it's the story of the monarch butterfly. It's a uh, you know, butterfly that uh, occurs in, in the millions in, in North America. And uh, it has this beautiful uh, multi-generational uh, um, uh, life cycle that basically uh, leads them to be distributed all over Northern North America in uh, late winter when temperatures drop. And so what these butterflies then do is they fly and migrate a like 3,000 mile journey from all kinds of different places in Northern North America, all the way from the West Coast to the East Coast. And they all fly basically through the same few trees. They're somewhere up in the mountains in Mexico. And it's a very interesting question how they find those trees. And there's a beautiful research and they do, of course, navigation. They use uh, skylight polarization. They use the magnetic field. They use landmarks, all these things. And of course, the question is, you know, how do they know all this? And so what's interesting about how they know all this is what, what happens next. So when they overwinter in those few trees, it's like less than a square mile, somewhere in the mountains in Mexico, and they overwinter, they start flying north next spring. So the same butterflies that once migrated south, right? 
they only fly north a few hundred miles, somewhere in Texas and uh, this region where I lived for actually 15 years. So I had them in my garden and then you see them and they, they feed on flowers that are exactly at that time, of course, in bloom and they're very happy and then they, they mate and then they die. And then you have a new generation of butterflies and they fly another few hundred miles north and then they, they, they feed and they mate and they die. And then you have a new generation of butterflies. And so this way over like four or five generations, they keep on spreading over Northern North America. And so this is where the story becomes remarkable because by the time temperature drops in Northern North America, there are millions of butterflies distributed all over the continent that will embark on a journey 3000 miles south that was last taken by their great, great ancestor. And so nobody learned this. Nobody has no tradition as far as we know and can understand in, in terms of butterfly communication. They're not telling each other. It's truly information that has to be in their genes. In a way, one is tempted to say the navigation ability or even the route to a few trees in the mountains is in the genes. And that's, of course, the way I say it right now, nonsense. I mean, you can't read a navigation route in the genome, right? But this is at the heart of our information problem that we're trying to understand. It means that somehow the genome is evolutionary selected to grow a brain. And it can't only be a brain. It has to be a, an embodied brain. It has to be inside a living animal with all the sensory perceptions, with all the sensilla. And, you know, it's, it, it feels the wind. It feels the magnetic field. It sees the light and all these things um, to, to basically give um, and endow the brain with this property, this ability to, when the time comes, you know, it feels it has to embark on a journey and it starts flying south. And we don't know how the butterflies feel about it. It's, it's like a program that is running in their brains. And they will do it and they will find those few trees. So this is how precise this is. And so what's so remarkable about this is, just to repeat just this key point that I find so fascinating about it is, it's nothing learned. This is an example of a type of what I personally think seems pretty intelligent to me. Um, and that leads, of course, to an interesting debate of what, what is really intelligence. And there's uh, not much consensus on that one. But, you know, let me just, you know, uh, for, for the moment, uh, entertain my calling this an intelligent behavior. Um, they do it and they haven't learned it. It's all decoded, decompressed information through growth process based on a genome. I find this just beautifully and impressive. Another equally interesting example that you give in the book is about uh, bees, uh, where a scout bee goes out and finds the location of the food. The scout bee then comes back to the hive and gives this information to other bees. Uh, the other bees learn this information, acquire this knowledge that which direction they have to fly and how far they have to fly to reach this location where the food is. Amazing example of how bees learn and exchange information. Yeah, no, I, I, this is uh, there's there's work done by by a number of colleagues uh, in this field since many decades that have been studying this bee behavior, and so they really have, you know, if, if we come back to the idea of intelligence definitions, right? What I just told you was purely an ability of an animal that's very impressive that is not learned but genetically encoded. Bees have also intelligence in a much more stringent sense. What you were describing is the ability of bees to take a bit of information, say, you know, outside of the hive, a kilometer northwest, there are beautiful flowers. And so the bee comes back and it wants to tell all the other bees, but how does it do that? And so it basically has to find a code. It has to, it has to develop a type of, types of symbols to convey that information to the others. And it does what is called a waggle dance. It can even do this in the dark inside the hive and then just by, by uh, electrostatic fields and, and, and movements of the air, bees standing around the, the, other, the bee who found the flowers will learn um, from the way the bee dances. It's really about the vector, how it stands relative to gravity. And then it kind of shakes its, 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 its uh, booty. Yeah. So it's the waggle dance is literally like every time it shakes its abdomen, um, the back of its body once is like 80 meters. 
And so it shakes it like 10 times and it's telling the, the, everybody around it, well, you got to fly 800 meters. And then the way it's standing relative gravity is a vector that tells them where to fly. And then next morning, all the other bees, they do another decoding of that information in their brains. And not only do they take that, you know, these symbols for something that is something utterly different, right? The, 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 the waggling of an abdomen doesn't directly relate to, it's not a, you know, it's not an, it's not an, 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 an obvious description of a distance, right? So they need to decode that in their brains. And then they correct it even for what time of day it is because they need to use the sun to actually find that place. So they have a clock in their own brains that, you know, ticks 24 hours and then they correct that information. And then they can take all of that, get out of the hive hours later and fly to those flowers. So this is even by, by rather stringent definitions of intelligence, um, just a very, very impressive feat. But it requires both components that we mentioned earlier. It requires the, the genetic, genetically grown network that endows the animal with the property to learn these things. But it also, of course, uses now the actual learning and transmission of information between animals, the encoding and decoding of symbols to, um, to find, in this case, a particular place. Before uh, we move on to the topic of artificial intelligence and artificial neural networks, uh, let us discuss the main idea that this book presents. Neuroscientists study intelligence uh, that emerges in biological neural networks, and researchers in the field of artificial intelligence aim to create intelligence in machines uh, by using artificial neural networks and many other techniques. The point that this book makes is that uh, is there anything that AI researchers can learn from neuroscience, and is there anything that neuroscientists can learn from the research in the field of artificial intelligence? This is a fascinating question and a fascinating idea that is at the core of this book. Uh, how did this idea originate? So this originates from uh, the neurobiologists, of course, having spent decades trying to figure out how an intelligent brain is done given a existing biological example, right? We, just, we have this brain of ours and we're just curious um, how you make that thing. And starting in the 1940s, starting with Turing's work, of course, and then the, the famous uh, initial workshop uh, that defined artificial intelligence uh, with Marvin Minsky and, um, and many other uh, people, Claude Chen and, and, and many people who were there in 1956, they basically wanted to, um, building on work by early cyberneticists, uh, see how you could make it, um, you know, maybe even better. And it was driven by computer technology that was just emerging, of course, the Turing machine, the von Neumann architecture of computers. And so there was a lot of hope from the get-go that, uh, you know what, we can just forget about these biological examples. We do want to create machines, this was a stated goal of cybernetics, that uh, can actually uh, do things um, the way biological systems that seem intelligent do them, but we need not necessarily do it the way biology does it. Maybe we can do it much better, much cleaner, without the biological messiness, if you will. Um, by, you know, using computer technology. And people were very excited. Uh, so famously at this 56 workshop that defined artificial intelligence uh, were Ellen Newell and Herbert Simon. They actually brought a little program. It was called Logic Theorist. And it was basically a simple processing logic, you know, decision tree type of thing, right? You go like, if A, then, you know, B, or if A and B, then C, and you go through a tree and you kind of... And this thing is hugely successful. It could like prove theorems of the encyclopedia... Um, um, Principia Mathematica, sorry. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a very, very exciting time. And for what is now making a big jump from the 50s to, uh, let's say, 2010, you know, 2011, just 10 years ago, basically, artificial intelligence sidelined the idea of neural networks. So they've always been around. They were wonderful efforts 
1959, Frank Rosenblatt invented the Perceptron, which is a basic artificial neural network that is, you know, just more layers, basically, what we still use today. And yet, the, the thrust, the major force behind artificial intelligence research always it was behind symbol processing logic, the way computers work and not the way the brain works. And, uh, you know, the early chess computers that, uh, you know, in the mid-90s beat uh, human chess players did so with simple processing logic. There were no neural networks involved. They basically use big data bank and you just look up, have look up tables and you just, you know, do the best move. And so then in 2011, something dramatic happened. 2000, maybe a bit earlier, started already, you know, 2008, 9, 10. But 2011 was a key year because... There, there, uh, in artificial intelligence research, um, uh, there is competitions, for example, the ImageNet competition, right? I mean, who has the best program to actually classify images? And suddenly, a new program won that was based on what we now call deep learning, on artificial neural networks. And it was so much better than anything that's ever been there that people were really astounded. And what happened after that is, is, uh, has been incredibly fast. The last 10 years have seen a replacement of pretty much all the early symbol processing logic approaches to AI with artificial neural networks. That would have, if you would have told this to somebody in 2005, people would have been very surprised. They would have said, well, we've been looking at these artificial neural networks in 60 years and, you know, they're no good. So, so they are. Fantastic. And so, the, you know, what was the big break? You know, we think that the big break really was not even the, a, a, a big advance in technology of how the um, networks were designed, but really uh, faster computers to do more simulation and especially big data. You need a lot of data to train these things. If you have like, you know, say 10,000 data sets, they learn nothing. If you have a million data sets, then suddenly they become really, really good. So... Being a neurobiologist, studying how intelligent biological brains are made and realizing that out there are people who are trying to avoid biology but build something that so far only exists in biology, namely intelligent neural networks, um, I became very curious what I could learn from that field. I started going to artificial life and artificial intelligence conferences. I made great friends at these uh, workshops. There is a lot of interest, um, but there's also still a lot of um, carefulness because, you know, biologists start talking about genes and molecules and how the synapse works. And my artificial intelligence colleagues who are trying to program these things feel like they can't do anything with that information. You know, what am I going to do with that molecule? How am I going to, you know, I don't even need those, they would tell me. We just change synaptic weights. It's a digital value, right? I mean, it goes up or down. So forget about all this molecular machinery that does it in biology. We can shortcut that. And of course, that, you know, made me wonder again, okay. Yeah, it sounds like you can shortcut, right? I mean, it can increase and decrease synaptic weight. However, haven't we been for the last 60 years trying to shortcut biology? And can we really shortcut? Is it really irrelevant that you have all these molecules or would you need to simulate those as well? And that's an open debate. Um, I think uh, we should be very careful what we shortcut. But the first step to understand uh, whether we can and what the consequences for an intelligent system would be, I think, is that we start talking to each other. As a neuroscientist, you study development of the biological brain and you study the connections that are formed uh, in the biological brain. And you discuss this in the book. However, you have been focusing on artificial neural networks as well. And you have been focusing on the question that how intelligence is created in machines artificially. The first artificial neural network had random connections. Initially, the connections were random, but during the learning process, some connections became stronger and some connections became weaker. Does this process of setting up random connections initially and as the artificial neural network learns, these connections change over time. 
does this process inform us anything about uh, how connections in biological brain are formed? Is it possible that some sort of randomness is going on in the biological brain? This has been discussed also in the 60s and 70s a lot, actually, already. It's a very interesting question, right? So the, the genetic program, the way it grows a network is not deterministic. The same genome can grow two identical twins and they will have individuality. They will have separate traits. Yes, they look more similar than you and I, but there are important developmental processes as the genetic information unfolds that are not deterministic, that are stochastic processes. You need these stochastic processes. And um, there's, a, you know, the most beautiful example in, in the brain is the branching, like every apple tree, um, you know, branches are stochastically different between every apple tree. So are they between dendritic trees of cells in the brain? And if you go further in biology, you know, your immune system has to produce random variation. Otherwise, you wouldn't robustly be able to identify unknown invaders. So genetic program doesn't necessarily mean it's deterministic, but it is evolutionarily selected for producing a robust outcome. And it can produce the butterfly that we talked about before. Now, when you say the early artificial neural network started with random connectivity, that's completely right. The Frank Rosenblatt perceptron from 1959 <coughs> um, it was a very simple monolayer neural network. And, you know, this beautiful picture in this old paper, that, you know, really at the, at the you know, the, the, the middle layer is in both directions connected randomly. And that's important because only if you have random connections do you not have any information in it prior to learning. Of course, biologists would argue babies are not born with random connectivity and switched on to learn. So everything we talked about the butterfly can do based on a genetically encoded developmental process is basically just left out. And it is left out in artificial intelligence based on artificial neural networks to this day almost entirely. All the big uh, Silicon Valley companies that we all know of that use AI to find out who you really would like to be with, what soap you would really like to buy, and, and who, what friends you really should have, and so forth, they all use deep neural networks that are trained by your own actions on the internet, right? Um, but uh, they're not grown networks and they're starting off with random connectivity in order to not be biased before they get heavily biased by what they learn. So this begs the question, can an artificial neural network that starts off with random connectivity become what some people like to call strong AI or artificial human intelligence? And you know, in other words, can you do something like human intelligence without doing the human genetically encoded developmental growth of connectivity? And that's another unanswered question. Um, there is an interesting parallel in the learning process itself. It is actually, in a way, also an energy and time consuming growth process. And so maybe uh, there's clearly hope for that. Um, this kind of learning can kind of compensate for not having started with a genome and a developmental process. Um, I am not sure that that's going to easily happen. I can see how you can produce very specific types of intelligence. And we see for any given task, there are AI systems already that outperform humans. But what makes you and me talk the way we talk and especially when we start talking about exceptions and history and experiences, there's a huge component of knowledge in intelligence. Um, things become very different. And I would like to make the argument that the growth process based on a genome is part of what makes a human intelligence human, just as it makes a butterfly intelligence a butterfly. You also discuss and differentiate two widely used approaches of creating artificial intelligence. 
In the first approach, we use an artificial neural network, uh, which is trained by feeding a lot of data. And then connectivity in the network evolves, which leads to the intelligence. And the second approach is reinforcement learning, where you have a very naive system in the beginning. You give this system some goals and by hit and trial, the system keeps learning and keeps improving. Which one of these two approaches of creating artificial intelligence in machines, in your view as a neuroscientist, is more close to the natural process of learning and acquiring intelligence? Reinforcement learning. So this is a big step and a very successful approach right now in AI. Um, one of the most successful players in that game are, are uh, DeepMind, which was bought by the company that starts with a G, right? Um, and uh, they have recently uh, developed, they started off with programs like, uh, like, like AlphaGo. Um, Go is like chess, you know, a zero-sum, two-person uh, game with a deterministic strategy, no random walk in it, right? But, but like chess, uh, there are so many degrees of freedom and possible moves that, uh, you know, you can't calculate them all. So neural networks have become very successful in doing this. And the early approaches that you describe is basically supervised learning, where you just feed tons of games, and then they learn by seeing those games. Of course, if you feed a neural network, say the number zero to nine, and then you show it an elephant, then it has to interpret the elephant as a zero to nine. And the alternative is, and you know, yes, we do get fed, I guess, a lot amount of data as babies, but uh, we also learn by trying. We can actually figure things out without being fed the way it works. And so this is what reinforcement learning simulates in artificial neural networks. It basically says you don't, you can, you can instead of feeding lots of games, you can let the um, neural network learn simply by outcomes of games. And uh, this has been hugely successful. It has been, uh, um, has been uh, not only used for Go, but also then for other games. It's uh, quite specific to those games, though. I mean, it's not like when you take this network, then it could, you know, would have a conversation with us. Um, but the latest step was actually end of uh, 2020, um, a uh, deep neural network called MuZero that would not even be given the rules of a game like chess or Go. And it would even learn those um, by reinforcement learning and some other tricks that are used in those artificial neural networks. But even though, even though this is coming closer and closer, so it's remarkable, right? It's interesting also that you ask exactly that question because really the most successful approaches in artificial intelligence based on artificial neural networks really has come closer and closer to how you know a baby learns and um, yet even those programs like mu zero is initially more or less random connected randomly connected and turned on to learn there's no genome there's no developmental process and yet again we can ask our question what consequences does this rather massive shortcut have, especially if we're eyeing not just a program that uses reinforcement learning to become very good at playing a specific game, but if we're eyeing what is called strong AI or human intelligence? This nicely leads us to my next question. An important milestone that the researchers in the field of artificial intelligence aim to achieve is to create artificial general intelligence, which is creating human-level intelligence in machines. Let us dig deep on this. Humans use specialized knowledge as well as common sense. Humans have a very effective ability to combine knowledge from different disciplines, from different specialized areas, from different sources to create uh, new knowledge very quickly. Most of the times it involves human imagination and common sense. However, today's artificial intelligent systems are usually narrowly focused and are task specific. 
These systems focus on one task. These systems are designed to do one specialized task. Now, to get to the goal of human-level intelligence, these systems will need uh, some sort of machine common sense along with the specialized knowledge. You have studied human brain and you have looked at various approaches of creating artificial intelligence. You also keep suggesting that there are no shortcuts to create intelligence and to develop intelligent systems. My question is, should the researchers in the field of artificial intelligence try to learn more from biological brain to achieve the goal of human level intelligence uh, in machines? I think that's what we see happening. So the, the, the inventor and developer of the, the key learning algorithm backpropagation uh, Geoffrey Hinton, for example, already like in 2014, had gave this beautiful lecture at MIT where he said, we need to look more at the brain and the brain doesn't use backpropagation. So here's the inventor of the key learning method saying, you know, this is not the end of the road. We're just, you know, it's good that we used it. It was a helpful stepping stone, but we need to look more at actual brains. Um, another very interesting and important protagonist in this debate is uh, Jeff Hawkins, who already in the 80s, uh, wanted to study artificial intelligence in light of how brains work. And uh, he tells the story that, uh, you know, they didn't want him to do that because back then people thought, you know, let's forget about biology. We can, we can make planes fly better than birds without having to study, you know, how birds do it. Um, but they really do it better is another question, but fine. So, so Jeff Hawkins, for example, just, uh, you know, had this, uh, he, he, you know, he, he famously founded uh, companies in Silicon Valley, Palm Pilots, and became uh, you know, very rich and then started uh, pursuing his passion of neuroscience and started research institutes and ri started writing books. And, you know, his latest book is really making a big, uh, step towards saying we need to understand how the human cortex works and the human cortex um, is you know more like a competitive uh, or partly maybe democratic process where individual columns vote and they need to talk to each other and we're not going to get artificial general intelligence unless we do it like the human cortex does it right so it's a clear step in the direction of biology however interestingly enough what i just told you about this idea of uh, trying to model the human cortex is still with the, yeah, we make it more biologically by designing it a bit more like the brain, but it's still otherwise, you know, initially just designed, switched on to learn. There's no genome, there is no developmental process in any of these theories. And so now we can ask the question whether, since we're taking step by step by step, sometimes painfully learning um, how, you know, yeah, we kind of have to go back to biology again and again and see how, you know, the solution's really not that bad that nature and evolution have found to program and wire up our brains. Uh, you know, will we end up needing a genome and a developmental process? Um, this is the question I'm interested in. A genome contains all genetic information of a biological organism. It contains information how to create different proteins and the genome is also responsible for creating brain over time. However, brain is a very complex machine. Uh, if we talk about human brain, there are almost 86 billion neurons and many, many connections. The present understanding seems to suggest that a genome does not contain the information about the structure of the brain. Uh, it just creates brain over time. There is a view that genome cannot contain this information, otherwise uh, uh, the whole process will become very rigid. Uh, you spoke about similar processes and approaches in the field of computing science few moments ago. For instance, uh, cellular automata, algorithmic uh, information theory. Uh, there is also another fantastic example, which is uh, Game of Life, where you have very simple rules. But when you apply these rules again and again on simple entities, over time, very complex structures emerge. Do you think that uh, there are similarities that how 
processes in the field of computing science such as game of life and algorithmic information theory work and how genome creates brain over time? Yes, I do think actually. And uh, this is something that I got very excited about the more I learned about it. It is not something that we're trained to uh, think about when we're working as developmental neurobiologists, manipulating genes and understanding the outcome of developmental processes. But I do think now that this is actually a, uh, a very fundamental concept that we should be thinking about more. So your your question contained a lot. You had the you basically gave the summary of what I would call the information problem, right? How can a few thousand genes contain um, you know so many synaptic connections that you have an intelligent brain in the end, uh, even before um, that brain has learned anything? And uh, you also gave a potential answer. And this is the idea that it doesn't need to contain the information for that endpoint. It only needs to contain the information to grow that structure. And this is something fundamentally different, which is exactly captured by algorithmic information theory. So in its essence, the idea here is that you have uh, a code that basically provides simple rules and the iterative application of those rules. So you need to provide the system continuously with energy and give it time to do so, can produce a system, an endpoint that actually has would need way more information to describe than you initially had in this, in this code. And so the most beautiful examples for this are um, the, the cellular automata that you mentioned. So Game of Life is, is famous. The, the artificial life community has been um, fooling around with this for, for decades. Um, this has been developed uh, something like 40, 50 years ago by John Conway, a mathematician. And uh, it's basically an idea. It's a little game that is uh, just, uh, you know, it's not, it's not something where two players play. It doesn't have any random walk. It's completely deterministic. It's basically just saying if you take math paper and you just paint some things black and leave others white, and now you just give it some rules, right? Some kind of genome. And the rules basically say, you know, whenever you have three white around you, then in the next round, you know, a black uh, little square becomes also white. If you have so many black around, then you become black and so forth. Very, very simple. And if you play this, and, you know, I really encourage everybody to just go and look at these computer simulations. People have been, thousands of people have been working on this and playing with this for, for, for decades, as I said. Um, there's a website, Game of Life. Um, you can just uh, check out. Um, it's just stunning because even with a simple, like random starting situation, if you apply the simple rules, you will just, over time, it really looks like life. I mean, it looks like there are civilizations appearing on one end of the board and then they're kind of sending gliders to the other end. They start interfering and lots of amazing things happen. If you wanted to describe all the things that happen, you would need a lot of information. But you don't need a lot of information to make it happen and to create um, this thing if you give it time and energy. And so this is basically what algorithmic information theory is all about, is the idea of how compressible is something that comes out in the end. And if you can compress it and describe it with much less information, then uh, you, know, you still need the time and energy to decompress it, if you will. And this is basically what, what deterministic simulation of Game of Life does. And it really caught my attention because not only does it look complicated, it's actually been demonstrated to be what is called a universal Turing machine. So it's Turing complete, meaning that in, you know, since you can depict any computation in zeros and ones, um, and black and white squares on a math paper are zeros and ones. Basically, any computation that is known to math will at one point occur in this game. And there's another one-dimensional cellular automata called Rule 110 that was discovered by Matthew Cook and Stephen Wolfram. That is the simplest known uh, universal Turing machine, has even simpler rules. And so this basically gave me an impetus just to start thinking at least about the possibility that we could approach the idea of how to get a lot of information that makes a neural network intelligent into that network, not by trying to describe it with a lot of information, not only by starting with a randomly connected network that needs to learn 
but based on a simple genome that can unfold that information in an algorithmic growth process. So basically what you are saying is that algorithmic growth is at the heart of self-assembling brain and the consequences are that this growth process needs energy and it needs time and uh, there are no shortcuts. Yes, absolutely. And this has another very interesting consequence, right? And this interesting consequence is how do you program something like this? If you want to program a structure where you know what comes out of it, you know, you can take a gene or a mutation or a piece of code in your simulation of a neural network. And you can say, you know, I, I give this synaptic weight a certain strength, this kind of thing. But if you have something growing out of a simple code based on an algorithmic growth process, there's a property I haven't told you about that's actually quite disturbing. And this is that it's what is called in mathematics undecidable. That means that actually you cannot predict what's going to come out of it. You really can't. This is not just a, you know, we're not good enough at it yet and we have to learn it at some point or so. No, no. There's a mathematical proof for Turing University universality and that includes that it's an undecidable system. If you want to know how a game of life, what a game of life looks like in iteration 1000 or this rule 110 one-dimensional cellular automata in, you know, iteration 1000. There is only one way to do this, and that is you need to run the simulation. You need to let the growth process do it. And that leads to this interesting implication that you cannot program the code to produce a different outcome because you cannot predict mathematically, clearly, undecidable you cannot be there's no and, and we will never be able to predict right because this, this is math so how do you program this well evolution evolution programs it not by knowing what will come out of it but evolution of course selects based on outcomes so evolution can just take this parameter space of a genome and just go through any of these mutations and whenever there's a brain that comes out of it in the end that works better well you know that has what evolutionary biologists call higher fitness and it leads to more reproduction and so forth this whole but so but so the interesting aspect then is that uh, that, that that really the only way to even program a system like this would be through random mutations and selection this is fantastic research so what does your research tell us about uh, the goal of uh, getting to human-level artificial intelligence? Yeah, so this has been the holy grail of AI research since its inception, right? The idea that um, we don't only want to create programs or machines that play better chess, but we do want to create, uh, for good or for bad, um, entities that have our level of intelligence, as you say. So this has been typically called strong AI by, by this is a term coined by David Chalmers and um, other people call it artificial general intelligence. And the one that we obviously can relate to is artificial human intelligence. What we mean with that is, you know, based on the idea of the famous Turing test, you could chat with that thing and you wouldn't notice. So I'm personally not super convinced of the Turing test. I mean, I know there are like beautiful efforts out there like GPT-3. Many might have seen that, you know, little programs that can actually talk quite convincingly. Turns out humans are actually quite easily fooled in conversation, except when it comes to like history and kind of making sense, common sense. So it turns out knowledge and common sense are a big part of intelligence. And if you're really good at playing chess, then yeah, you know, you're an artificial intelligence that can play really good chess, but that doesn't make you what we would like to call a human intelligence. So a human intelligence is one that can do a lot of things not very good or maybe quite good, but, you know, not one individual thing super, super, super good, typically, you know. So we can create AI systems by now for most things. I mean, you know, I mean, your pocket calculator is better than doing simple algebra than, than, than I am in my head, right? 
So, but even for fancy stuff, we can really create AIs that do these things. But human level AI, the idea would be can do all these things. And so here I really have quite a strong opinion. And so that opinion is that the idea of a level is a little bit difficult to apply to a type of intelligence that is as broad as ours. So we can measure on a scale your ability to play chess. That's quantifiable. And I mean, you either win or you lose, right? I mean, so obviously the one who won was better. So if the AI wins, then they're smarter in that game. If an AI is smarter in voice recognition, solving the cocktail party problem, you know, that's great. Then they're smarter. If they're smarter in image recognition, in knowing, you know, what soap you want to buy or what partner you want to live your life with, um, you know, not sure how successful they really are this, but, you know, these are individual tasks. Fine, you can measure this on a scale, right? These are all types, individual types of abilities, individual types of an intelligence that you can measure on a scale. But the broadness of human intelligence, I don't know what that scale would be. I mean, yeah, you can do an IQ test, but, you know, we, we know how unhappy cognitive scientists and psychologists and everybody are with IQ tests because then they will tell you, you know, it doesn't capture emotional intelligence. It doesn't capture, you know, still not a person that has the type of intelligence that I want to interact with. And, and they're right because there is no simple scale. So the idea of human level is odd because it can only be a level if there were a scale, but there is none. There are scales for individual tasks and you can be an AI intelligence at that level. But to be a human intelligence is not a question of level. It's a question of breadth. It's a question of the type of history that our brain, the human brain has. And this is a history that is based on first a genome that let that thing grow. And it was quite smart and not just a randomly connected deep neural network when it was born. And then how we lived our lives and all the input that came into it and how we learned and how we became who we are. This makes us and each individual human, the intelligent being that they are. And to create something like that, I'm not even sure creating is the right word. You know, when you talk to AI people and deep learning artificial neural network people right now about the biggest bottleneck in getting anything smart, it's training. It takes a lot of time and energy in an iterative process of feeding and feeding and feeding or reinforcement learning, reinforcement learning, reinforcement learning. But it takes already a lot of time for just one single task. For the breadth of a human intelligence, I would argue you need the life of a human. You know, if you want to create a human intelligence, I can tell you exactly how to do it. You know, there are some There's a moment when it starts with a semen and an egg and then it takes nine months and then it's born. And then it takes years to become an intelligent neural network that we recognize as a three-year-old, six-year-old or 10-year-old human. You briefly mentioned few moments ago that there was time when researchers in the field of artificial intelligence borrowed ideas from biology of brain. Does your research inform us that uh, this approach should continue and uh, studying human brain uh, is a good approach to try to create improved uh, artificial intelligence systems? I think that if you want to create a human type intelligence, looking at the human brain is the right thing to do. Um, and AI researchers are increasingly doing this. So we talked about this already, right? The idea of simulating the cortex and, and, and important people in that field picking up this idea. Um, we also talked about it that they're still not growing it though, right? They're still talking about designing the neural network. I mean, convolutional neural networks, for example, have been in use in AI for many years. They're very good at image recognition tasks, for example, and they're basically simulating, you know, a bit like the visual cortex. So, so yes, we, if we want a human AI, um, if you really want that, it uh, would, I think, have to go down the human path. And what my research, um, in terms of research for the book, but also the work that we do in the lab, uh, kind of says to me is that 
you really will get closer to the way we are used to our brains working and recognizing them as intelligent if you include the developmental process that wires them up because they're not randomly wired networks that are just switched on to learn. But as we just had this discussion about intelligence, right? We talk about human level intelligence. It's not the same as a general intelligence. The general intelligence is also supposed to capture this idea of breadth. But we also talked earlier about these amazing examples in biology, right? Butterfly intelligence, zero learning, just genetically encoded. They can do amazing things. And, you know, that's a completely different type of intelligence. And if you want to, you know, I don't know, what, what is artificial general intelligence supposed to be? If you, you know, depending on who you talk to, you will get very different answers to that question. Everybody, most people will come back to the human when they talk about strong AI or, or artificial general intelligence. But some people also will readily acknowledge that, yeah, you know, it can get smarter than we are, but not in a human way. I think that's wise to, to say, because uh, I do think there is no fundamental reason why current AI efforts and the really accelerating pace of their development would not produce something that is smarter than a human. But it's not going to be like a human. It's going to be smarter in some kind of strange way. And it's going to have, you know, just like a butterfly has butterfly intelligence and a human has human intelligence. And every individual human has individual human intelligence. So will a stronger, you know, maybe more general AI, you know, it will have an AI intelligence. And nobody can tell you what that would actually look like. You mentioned a term a few moments ago that is uh, stuck in my mind. You say that at present, artificial neural networks are usually prefabricated, rigid networks. But human brain grows over time and new connections are set up. So perhaps if scientists in the field of artificial intelligence focus on growing a dynamic artificial neural network with changing connections over time, maybe that is an idea that they can borrow from biological brain? I think so. But so there are people who train this. Um, there are efforts in the ALIFE community to, to do this. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the efforts that uh, I got into contact with once I went to these A-Life conferences and I found those people, it's very exciting. They're actually people who train artificial neural networks not by feeding them data and not by reinforcement learning. They're training them by basing their synaptic weights in a, in a recurrent neural network um, based on a genome. And so you can either have a genome where every gene kind of individually specify a synapse, right? So that takes the development out, but at least it has some kind of genome. Of course, there's not a single gene, as we discussed already, for every single synapse. And then there are people now who are trying to have a genome that feeds into some kind of gene regulatory network. Then there's like hundreds of iterations of that developmental process. And that produces a matrix of, of, of values that you can put into the synaptic weights and then you have some kind of recur, you know, recurrent neural network that has an ability. And then you can use that to, to do something. And so what is, for example, done is to, let's say, have an autonomous agent find a way through a maze. And if it does it better, then you keep those mutations. And if it doesn't do it better, you don't. And so you can actually train a neural network by having a genome, feed a gene regulatory network through a developmental process, produce a recurrent neural network, and then provide evolutionary feedback based on behavior often kind of artificial agent. And it is as complicated as it already sounds when I'm telling you. The, the amount of computational effort that has to go into that is just enormous. And the field is not yet at a point where these types of networks would be performing something better than classic um, either supervised learning or reinforcement learning um, deep neural networks. So this is why you probably haven't heard of them. Um, but the researchers are on it and uh, they're making a valiant effort. And it is, I think, to my mind, key in that field to find what it is that these things now can do. Maybe something about adaptability um, that others don't. Or maybe about breadth of not just, you know, one task on a scale. Um, but uh, if we say, you know, this is where maybe we should look. Yes, we are looking as a scientific community. 
But, you know, just like with neural networks from the get-go, you mostly hear about them when they actually really become a success and suddenly work uh, and do something that, that really, you know, people are very impressed with. And the, uh, I think we'll get there, but it'll also show us limitations because the actual computational effort to just do an evolutionary programming of a growing neural network and you want to go through iteration of iteration of, um, of evolutionary programming, selection based on random mutations and then behavior of an outcome that you could not have predicted, is such an enormous effort that it's not a question anymore of like, you know, Murphy's Law computers are getting, 18, you know, dubbed twice as fast every 18 months. That's going to be enough in a few years. No. This is not going to be enough. Um, you know, however fast you make a, a, a little uh, electric scooter, it'll never get you to the moon. We have been discussing your book, The Self-Assembling Brain, How Neural Networks Grow Smarter. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. It is a thorough book. It is structured very well and it covers a lot. Is there anything else that you think we should uh, discuss before we close this discussion? Yes, I think what I, what I would like to touch on is this concept or this idea how nice it would be to talk to each other. Because, you know, we've been talking about biology and AI, about brains and artificial neural networks back and forth. This is very rare. Our discussion here as, uh, is not something that normally happens in my home conferences of molecular mechanisms of brain wiring. And it also doesn't happen at the AI conferences that I went to. Um, so what I tried in the book is I took basically those years of going to these conferences and learning about both fields. And in the end, I felt like to have what you get out of conversations, like the one we are having here right now, is not something that you can easily condense in just, you know, me writing a book. So what I ended up doing is I just put in these conversations between people who are trying to understand each other but come from very different fields. So I, I literally invented a developmental geneticist, a robotics engineer, um, a, a neuroscientist, and an AI researcher. Um, these people don't exist. But what they say is all stuff that I have heard and that I've experienced. And so basically they start trying to talk to each other, basically kind of telling each other how they can't use what you know the other field is doing. And then as the book progresses over 10 kind of sometimes pretty harsh discussions, I had the feeling they, they came closer together. And so my hope would be that uh, this is really what what we, I could achieve with this book is that uh, people in each other's field would want to have a look at it and enjoy the debates that are in there, but also kind of relate to those debates and hopefully at some point have those debates. Professor Peter Robin Hisinger, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. As I said, this is the type of conversations I can only hope we're going to have more in the future. Thank you and goodbye.